Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Runway by Oz Runways, the Android EFB you've been looking for from the makers of Australia's most popular electronic flight bag. For your free 30-day trial, search RWI in the Google Play Store or visit ozrunways.com. G'day and welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 125 and our third release of content recorded at the Australian International Air Show at Avalon in 2015. I'm Grant McCarran, and together with my co-host Steve Vischer, our director of all things visual, Stephen Pam, roving reporter Micah Lee, and sound man Alan Van Pudge, we collected a lot of content at Avalon and we're eventually getting it out to you. I know it's been a while since the last episode and we're sorry for that, but as with many labours of love and fun, life does get in the way and paying the rent, keeping the family happy, doing airshow commentaries and producing the weekly Australia desk for the airplane geeks often winds up taking priority over producing an episode. But for now, in this episode, we have a number of chats and discussions recorded at Avalon, including my chat with Heidi Fedak from Gulfstream about the market in their aircraft, including the new G650ER that we were sitting in at the time, and also with Todd Baker, who used to fly AV-8B Harriers in the Marines before transitioning to Gulfstreams, where he was flying the top brass around. Micah in turn caught up with Andrew Carter from the Australian Vintage Aviation Society to see how he was enjoying flying the Fokker triplane in the gaggle of World War I aircraft at the show. As you may remember, I'd previously chatted with Andrew and Graham from Tavis about the Australian Vintage Aviation Society and the Fokker triplane that they were uh, demonstrating last year at the media launch. After his chat with Andrew, Micah then went on to talk with Gene DeMarco from the Vintage Aviator Limited in New Zealand about the collection of fantastic World War I replica aircraft they'd brought over for the show. We then hear from Steve talking with Jeff from the Australian Aviation Hall of Fame. And then I have a chat with Dr. Graham Dorrington from RMIT about his involvement with Airbus's Fly Your Ideas competition. And he introduces me to some of the students who are involved before I wrap up by chatting to Isabel Flore, Senior Vice President for Airbus Pacific. Unfortunately, the background sound was pretty high during this one and we couldn't filter it all out. So it's a bit noisy. Hopefully uh, you can get the content and uh, enjoy listening to that. Following that segment, I stay in the Airbus world and catch up with Mike Borza, Airbus's A350XWB marketing director, whom I last caught up with in Sydney and then in Perth when the A350 was on its route proving flights. We have a chat inside the Airbus chalet at Avalon about the A350 going alive with Qatar. And finally, I caught up with David Valupalai once again to talk about the Airbus corporate jets. You may remember uh, we did a good interview with him inside the ACJ319 at Avalon 2013. This time, we're at the Airbus stand in the trade halls and uh, we had a chat about the newly available ACJ330. We also discussed the A380 and its market niche, Airbus's view on passenger seating and the nuances of supporting ACJ owners. So sit back and enjoy the show. Uh, a bit of content here for you and I'll catch you on the other side. Fedak from Gulfstream. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well. Yeah, we're once again inside a G650, but this time it's the G650ER. It is the G650ER, and we're excited to have it here at Avalon. Okay, now, the 650 was pretty amazing. Uh, the whole team came through. We all wanted to see what the inside was like last time, and I was having a great time in the cockpit, and it's an amazing aircraft. 
but you've made it more amazing with the ER. How have you gone about that? Well, I'm glad you think it's more amazing because we do as well. The G650 ER can go um, 7,500 nautical miles at Mach 8.5. That's 500 nautical miles farther than the G650 can. And it can go 6,400 nautical miles at Mach 9.0, which is close to the speed of sound. So it's a pretty phenomenal airplane. It can fly. Um, we had a customer recently fly the aircraft from uh, Singapore to Las Vegas. Vegas mm -hmm. nonstop and we recently flew our own demonstrator this aircraft that you're sitting in right now we flew it from White Plains New York to Beijing and then from Beijing to Savannah Wow that's a pretty good set of flights it really is <coughs> and uh, I've got to say we're sitting in the in the rear, towards the rear of the cabin we're actually right over the wing route and uh, I, I wouldn't mind spending a fair bit of time in this kind of environment it, it would make that kind of long distance travel pretty easy uh, it does. It is a really great cabin. It has the largest windows in business aviation. They're pretty large, as you can They're see. They're huge. <laughs> they are. They are um, the largest in business aviation. It has a very low cabin altitude as well. This aircraft travels. Its uh, max altitude is 51,000 feet. And so it um, at that level, your um, out cabin altitude is about 4,800 Wow, because the airliners love it when they can say, oh, we've got 6,000 foot altitude, but here you yes. are getting getting 4,000, and you're higher. Absolutely. Which is great. It's great. So, yeah, that lets you get above everyone. You get even better performance out of your engines, more range, of course. And, and you avoid traffic and bad yes, weather. Exactly. You're right above it all. Absolutely. <laughs> In terms of the market, how's that been going? Uh, this, the 650, is it's not for the person who's just entering into having a business yet this is pretty serious stuff that we're sitting in so what kind of market are we looking at it is the g650 had a phenomenal introduction when we launched it in 2008 the aircraft entered service in 2012 since then we've delivered more than 100 g650 slash g650 extended range or er aircraft we have a backlog that extends into 2017, so the latter, late 2017. Um, most of our customers for the G650 and G650ER are companies, so private, public, and Fortune 500 companies. Okay. Um, obviously, it's a phenomenal aircraft, and you can use it for leisure and personal, but predominantly, it's a vital business tool for companies. And do the companies have it in a similar configuration to what we're in now, or do they go... Would they go more for um, boardrooms and, and working environment while traveling? Well, this is a working environment yeah. that you're sitting in. I know it may not look <laughs> like it, but we're at the four place uh, conference grouping right here. So you could have meetings in here. As you know, we're yep. sitting across from a, a high definition monitor that you can use to for presentations. Yep. So we do offer a lot of customization of the G650 and G650ER cabin. We have a wide variety of floor plans that you can tailor to whatever works for your particular mission. Okay, I was just noticing the couch down the back there. So Yeah, it, yeah. this um, this aircraft is equipped with a stateroom, so it's um, closed off and there are two divans in there. Each one uh, is berthable, so it becomes, it folds out to become a bed. So it's a, a pretty exciting to have that stateroom should you need it for mm -hmm. um, long range travel. This aircraft can fly for um, more than 14 hours, and so you may need to sleep and rest while you're um, so you can arrive at your destination refreshed and I note that there's crew rest just up near the cockpit entry yes uh, there is crew rest on this aircraft yes yep. 
so they, they get a um, I believe it was a couple of seats similar to what we're sitting in at the moment they can uh, recline and sit back in they do they have one um, it's one seat okay on, in the crew rest that is uh, similar to the seat that you're sitting in right now lucky them exactly <laughs> <laughs> so where, where do you see the, um, the the top end business jet market going I mean, everyone thought that you were doing pretty well with previous ones. Then along came the 650 and now the ER. Absolutely. Um, The 650 ER was announced in May 2014. Um, It was certified in November and we did our first delivery uh, in December. And um, in October of 2014, Gulfstream announced a new family of aircraft, the Gulfstream G500 and the Gulfstream G600, which fit into our product lineup between the Gulfstream 450 and 550 and the 650 and 650 ER. So they're right in there and they capitalize on many of the same qualities that we provide in the G650. So they have an optimized wide cabin. Uh, they're high-speed aircraft. They're capable of flying at 8590. Their max operating speed is 925. Um, they have the same windows as the yeah. G650, so a very large window. Um, and they have the same cabin altitude and a lot of the same features, the same cabin management system. So those aircraft fit into our lineup, and so we have eight aircraft available for purchase uh, pretty much for any mission that you require we have an aircraft that can do it any thoughts that they might ever go bigger than the 650 i guess you'll have to wait and see (laughs) now heidi you uh you just mentioned you've got quite the range um was it seven aircraft eight aircraft eight aircraft that was it parked just out beside us here on the ramp is the uh the 280 and so is that the baby of the range we don't call it a baby. We call it our entry-level aircraft along with the Gulfstream G150. So the G280 is our super mid-sized offering. That aircraft can seat from 8 to 10 passengers, has the capability to travel 3,600 nautical miles with four passengers and two crew members. So pretty phenomenal aircraft. That's pretty good. Uh, but you've also got the 150 as well. It's, we do. And so what's the 150 targeted at? Uh, the G150 is what we consider our entry-level yeah. aircraft. So it's a, a good aircraft to get people um, at, and for missions that are perhaps not as far, that you don't have to travel as far as you would, for example, a G280 or uh, the G650, okay. which almost duplicates that range. So we always think that or, or talk to our customers about what are their mission requirements. You don't want to have an airplane that has a lot more capability than what you actually need. Um, so we talk about budget. We talk about the range, the speed, where our customers are going to be traveling. And then we help them find the right aircraft for them. And with yep. eight aircraft, there's always a Gulfstream that's good. <laughs> for you <laughs> yeah and that is important because they're, they're, as you said there are the market segmentation and different sizes and so on is, is the 150 as an entry-level aircraft is that you might find an owner flyer or is it still the owner of that would have pilots flying it for them um, it could be either but traditionally it's the owner that has uh, pilots flying for them yeah. usually have a flight department or um, you have to have two pilots for all of our aircraft so usually you would have yeah. you would have someone who flies for you yeah that's a little more serious if it's all two pilot ops it is it is yes (laughs) you talked about working with the customer to figure out budget mission what sizing works and so on is there a a 
a demographic of market that goes for Gulfstream as opposed to as we're sitting on the ramp here we've got Falcon there are Learjets and and Bombardier and so on how do you see yourself differentiating against the others in the market sure I would say what differentiates Gulfstream in the market is um, really our product support we've been um, nominated by our customers in various trade publications as offering the number one product support and as an example of our commitment to that Gulfstream has approximately 15,000 employees around the world. More than 4,200 of those employees are committed to uh, servicing and supporting the aircraft. So it's a huge commitment for us. And I believe that it is a differentiator for Gulfstream, the degree to which we go to help our customers make sure that their aircraft are reliable, that they're available, that they take off when they're ready to go. The people who buy a corporate jet are a particular group, either you've got the corporate side or the individuals who might buy one. They're used to getting pretty good service, so that is an important differentiator and they're also, as you said, they need it ready to go any time. You've got a big network for that. Absolutely. We do have a worldwide network of not only our own company-owned facilities, but we have uh, third-party authorized facilities as well. So it is a tremendous network. We have field and airborne support teams. We have field service representatives. So we're really committed to that. We believe that really top quality product support sells new airplanes. And so we know also that one of the biggest benefits of business aviation is flexibility and reliability. If your airplane won't go when you want to go, then you have a very expensive, attractive paperweight, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, you need to go, the aircraft needs to be ready to go when you are. And we do everything that we can to make sure that's the case. Is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, the Gulfstream aircraft and the, the market? Um, well, I would say that Australia is a, a great market for us. It's a very steady market. We're excited to be here at the Australian International Air Show here in Avalon. Bye, Gulfstream. <laughs> thank you, Heidi. You're welcome. Todd Baker, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. No, oh, thank you. Glad hey, to be here. It's pretty good. Uh, you brought a beautiful couple of aircraft with you. Yes, we have. Yeah. Um, now, you're, we're sitting here in the 650ER. Uh, but you're telling me that you're flying pretty much every um, every Gulfstream that's out there at the moment? I have. I, I fly the large cabin, so the 450, the 550, and then the 650. Okay. And then I've got prior, prior experience in the G4 and also the G5 and okay. the G3 going, going way back. Yeah, way back. Back when they were just one digit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. So let's let's start off with um, how did you get to where you are now? What was what was your flying career like? Uh, I was in uh, 20 years in the Marine Corps and a Harrier pilot by trade. And uh, off uh, when I they let me escape out of that cockpit, they, I got to fly. That's why I started the G4, flying that out in Hawaii. And then uh, the second tour, I did uh, flying uh, generals and admirals uh, on the 550 and the G3 up out of uh, DC. So it's from AV8s to Gulfstream. You were it's, right in it. Yeah, it's a, it was a, it was a long transition. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can't just put it where you want. You got to right, actually exactly. flare. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. So you've been flying with Gulfstream for a while. Um, you've experienced a number of the wide bodies in Gulfstream. Are the, do they all have a common type rating? No, they do not. The uh, the the 450 and the five. Well, the, uh, currently being manufactured, the 450 and the 550 are on the same type rating, and that's on the G5 type. So also the same as the classic five. Um, the G6 is a, um, a lot, although there's a lot of similarities with the 450, 550. Uh, it's its own type rating on the G6. And uh, we we just jokingly referred to uh, differences between the 650 that we were in the cockpit of last time and the 650 ER it's 
everything's the same, just okay. more tanking or? Uh, just more fuel. So instead okay. of the 44,000, now it's up to 48,000. So an extra 4,000 pounds of gas um, on the airplane, which gives it the extra range. They squeezed it in in a couple of spots. Squeezed it in a couple of spots, that's right. <laughs> yeah. In terms of flying, um, how is she to ha- how does she handle? Oh, like a dream. It's yeah. uh, I, I often uh, equate it to in the, in the older airplanes, and uh, they were they were good flying airplanes, but they were maybe just a little bit more solid. Um, and then the 550 came along with the redesigned wing, um, which was a fantastic airplane to fly. And this one is twice as good as the uh, as the 550 flies. Okay. Um, what kind of speeds are we looking at in terms of um, the, four, the the G5 G6 um, in terms of um, unstick speed, you know, stall speed, things like that. What's what's some of the numbers that you're typically flying to? Uh, well, well, what you have is the, the the G4 would be the fastest of all of them. So they're usually up in the one one thirties. Um, now we're talking landing speed. So yeah. down in the one thirties, and the five would be down one um, fifteens. And this airplane is right somewhere in the between, you know, one twenty, one twenty two, something like that. That's for the landing speeds. Uh, takeoff speeds are typically about the same. Uh, obviously, it depends on what weight. This the max weight of this airplane is going to be a little bit more. Um, but they're very similar in the takeoff speeds. Okay. What's your typical runway length that you operate out of? Uh, well, typical, the airfields that we go to are going to be long airfields. So, I mean, you're looking at 10,000 feet, the long ones. So we're, we're comfortable down to 4,500. Um, and obviously then it depends on, you know, getting in is easy. Getting out is the, is the trick then at that point because, you know, with enough gas to go where it is that you want to go. Yeah. Uh, but 4,500 minimum, that's a typical, I'd say, between six and seven. Okay. And uh, what's the typical mission that you're flying? Admittedly, with, when you're doing demos, you're flying around the place. But as, as a, if, if you're a um, corporate pilot flying a Gulfstream, what kind of um, flights are you looking at? Well, that's a that's a tough because I mean it really covers the gamut. I mean you have you have operators that um, will do you know milk runs from you know the oil companies will do milk runs around different spots. It's all domestic stuff and it's all one day stuff, um, but they're carrying a lot of people. And then you have operators that, that make the long range, you know, go from Chicago to Europe for, for business meetings or personal or, or whatever that happens to be. So it really covers the gamut. It depends on what the what the mission for the company is. But they the, the airplanes are more than capable of adequately you know meeting all of those requirements no matter really what's asked of them systems on board in the cockpit um, the cockpit workload workload and things like that uh, looks like you've got quite a bit of gear up there helping you along yes um, are you uh, you know a couple hundred feet off the ground you switch over and if fly it with buttons and, and knobs all the way through to the end i don't like to do that but you you can do that once you you know 200 feet you can turn the autopilot on and, and off you go um i like to fly it up because it you know gives the opportunity to do it the system is with the two pilots up there especially even when you're hand flying it with even if you're not using the auto throttles the system is designed to be uh, very fluid and very easy to set up um, so with our policies and our procedures a lot of the stuff is automatic up in the front, so you can do it either way. It just depends on what you're what you're looking what okay. you're looking for. And it's got the tactile response. It's it's not you don't move the do you move the throttles to a detente and they stay there or are they moving with the auto throttle? They are they are moving with the auto throttle. So Gulfstream's um, mentality is that you should always be seeing what the airplane's doing. Okay. So the throttles always move um, and they'll the full throw. Um, and basically, it's just a button that's on the back of the throttle as you turn them on, and the auto throttle engages, and it'll move them to whatever power settings being commanded at, you know, at the time. Yeah, that's very handy to know what the computers are doing y- yes. by watching the controls. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, in terms of GPS, nav, radar, all that kind of stuff, I imagine uh, this particular aircraft would probably have a, pretty much everything you could ever ask for. This one does, and it's got some neat things with the hybrid IRSs, so the, 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 um, the satellites are, are constantly upgrading the INUs. Which is, uh, which is a nice thing, so it keeps them very tight. So we really very rarely have any issues with, with that at all, and the GPS is a great great piece of gear for that. How have you found having a, a HUD in the 
civilian kind of environment. It's like Linus's blanket. <laughs> it's it's nice actually to see because it gives him a comfort factor because I grew up with it. That was my primary attitude indicator in the in in my previous airplane. So seeing yeah. it up there, um, I'm what I call I term a HUD cripple. Um, <laughs> so I, I use the HUD for nearly everything and yeah. all the information that's up in the HUD you can glean from other spots in the cockpit, uh, you know on the on the displays up front. But it's just easier to always keep your eyes outside and always focus on that stuff that's uh, in front of you. Do you have um, enhanced vision uh, for low light situations? Uh, like some aircraft have got the forward-looking um, infrared and things like that. We do. We have the we call the EVS, the enhanced vision yep. system, and that uh, is available. You can use it down below, but it, it, but it uh, overlays over the top of the HUD. So as you look through the HUD, it gives you a real-time um, video outlay of what's in front of you. And low visibility is where you're looking for that, and it's really great in things like smog or some sand or some very light uh, precipitation. Uh, and it allows you a much greater, uh, lower, much lower altitude on approaches if you can if you can gain that um, that view of the runway through the the EBS. Yeah, so you're actually cleared to go lower than the the mist level because you're actually you're able to see it. Right. If you have vertical guidance, th- yeah. and this is in the U.S. right now, and it's, and it's becoming more prevalent in other places. But right now, if you have vertical guidance and you're on approach with it, and you gain the runway through the EBS, you can go down to 100 feet AGL, okay. which is a um, a great capability. Very handy. Yeah. And as, as I say, synthetic vision shows you what should be there. The EVS shows you what really is what there. What is there. That's the right. That's exactly it. Yep. Yeah. Like you see the deer on the runway thing. Yeah. Now, the EVS is, or the SVS is good, too, because um, it, it gives you a warm and fuzzy when you're in some kind of, you know, in mountainous terrain and you're and you're also in the clouds. So you can't see those mountains, but you know they're out there. Yeah. So it's nice to have that three-dimensional picture out in front of you yep. that just shows that you're going in the right spot. <laughs> yeah. It's not all red ahead. You're fine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about flying the Gulf Streams? Uh, I'd just say that it's a dream come true for me. I've enjoyed it ever since the, the first... I, I didn't even know this whole world was out there, and uh, it's opened it up. And this is the airplane. Um, uh, the quality is always there for them, and uh, and the performance and the, and the top-notch gear that's out there. It makes it makes flying it a far less stressful deal than it could be in certain situations, and, uh, and, and I just enjoy it. Excellent. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. defence of the flight line with Andrew Carter of the Australian Vintage Aviation Society, shortened to Atavis. Andrew, thank you for talking to us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, so we've got the red triplane here, which we just finished flying as part of an 11-ship formation in conjunction with the Vintage Aviator Limited, who've kindly come over from New Zealand to show Australians what a big contingent of World War One aircraft looks like in the air. So the triplane, our triplane's obviously the most famous in that it's uh, the Red Baron's triplane. Everyone seems to recognise it. Look, it flies well, it's uh, an enjoyable aircraft to fly, but to actually be flying it with 10 other aircraft is, is fantastic. It's been a real eye-opener, it's been an educational experience, and I've enjoyed it immensely. Now, we've just watched a very impressive uh, display with 11 aircraft, both from TVAS and TVAL. Explain, what, what was it like up there managing to fly with uh, the other aircraft? Yeah, TVAL, um, it's their show, it's the way that they've designed the routine. It's very professionally and very safely done, and uh, I've just been very, very lucky to be a part of it. Uh, it's fantastic. It's really interesting to see different fights happening at different levels amongst different aircraft. It's fascinating to go in and chase different aircraft yourself. And of course, this is an opportunity when I get in Australia. Uh, Tavis is the only organisation in Australia with a collection of World War One aircraft, and we are go- growing that collection, but we simply just don't have the numbers that t- uh, TVAL have. And uh, we know with TVAL that they have an agreement with the Shuttleworth collection in terms of exchanging aircraft. Is that a goal as well of uh, TVAS? 
Yeah, well, look, we've been very lucky. Uh, we've been working with them, and we have now taken their one of their Bristol F2B fighter replicas. Uh, they'll be coming home from this show with us. So it has been performing here at Avalon. Uh, it's been wowing the crowds. It's one of the favourites of the... That and the RE8 seem to be the crowd favourites. But that Bristol fighter will come home to us with us to Caboolture and we'll, uh, we'll change the colour scheme slightly. We'll probably make it into a one-squadron aircraft that we're operating in Palestine during the war. And it's good to see a very uh, cohesive agreement you have with TVAL. What's that relationship like you know, since its formation? Well, obviously, TVAL are the leaders in this field. There is no one else in the world that quite comes close to what they do. So our inspiration came from TVAL, and we look for guidance from TVAL. And uh, each of the guys we've dealt with have been very professional, very friendly, incredibly helpful. But we found that, especially over there, when you go to Masterton, you can talk to the guys who make fabric, you can talk to the guys who make the instruments, you can talk to the guys that do the woodwork. Uh, very skilled operators, and you can learn a lot from them. But as far as running the air show routine, I've learned a hell of a lot from them this, this time round and very impressed with what they do. And what does the future hold for Tavis? It looks very uh, optimistic. Yes, well, as I say, we've got the, the three aircraft flying. We'll have a four, well, four aircraft technically with the Bristol fighter. Uh, we've got a D7 that we're still under construction and that's got a long way to go. It's probably still another 18 months to two years before that's completed. But the idea is to continue to uh, collect aircraft to complete them as accurately as possible and then to display them to the Australian public in a way that we can educate them about the men and the machines of that period. So that's what we'll be looking forward to doing and the exposure and the experience we've gained here at the air show will be very beneficial in us performing it in a similar manner to the Australian public in the future. And what's the feedback been like from the general audience here at Avalon so far? The general audience, I think, been very receptive. As I say, the RE8 and the Bristol fighter seem to have been the crowd favourites at every opportunity, but Australia just hasn't had a chance to see anything like this. This is the largest collection that's ever taken flight in Australia of World War I aircraft. Uh, I think people are quite fascinated. Certainly with the rotary engine technology, um, people have never seen that before. It astounds me how many engineers and pilots, even that don't understand it, are quite surprised to actually see the cylinders move when we turn the prop. So. I think it's been a fantastic experience for them and that they seem to uh, they seem to say the same thing. Well, it's been impressive to us. Uh, Mr Andrew Carter, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. over at the Foxtrot hangars and I'm here with Mr. Gene DeMarco who is from uh, TVAL, the Vintage Aviator Limited, all the way from New Zealand. Gene, welcome to the show and thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. It's fantastic to be here. We always enjoy the uh, Avalon Air Show, the Australian International Air Show. It's one of the best ones in the Southern Hemisphere and certainly the biggest. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself, your position at TVAL and more or less your, your background and uh, your story into uh, aviation. Great. Um, I started flying at a very early age. My dad worked for uh, Pan American World Airlines for a mere 37 and a half years. Uh, he was around when uh, uh, Charles Lindbergh was around and they had flying boats. So uh, aviation was sort of in my blood. Um, I learned to fly at 15, been flying ever since. Um, I had a real affinity towards some of these early airplanes. And as a kid, I used to travel to a place in upstate New York called Old Rhinebeck Aerodrome, where they have uh, a pretty large collection, a private collection of pre-World War I, World War I, and Golden Age airplanes. 
at the time I was sort of restoring a Piper and uh, ended up flying it, uh, flying it across country sort of when I graduated high school and um, ended up working at Old Rhinebeck for quite a while flying some really interesting early airplanes and uh, I just I just love it. Um, came here to New Zealand because somebody got a hold of me and said, hey, there's this crazy film director. He, he owns a Sopwith Camel. No one's really flown one in New Zealand, uh, and he'd like to display it at an air show. Are you interested in coming out? And, um, well, I, I thought about it and said, geez, I've never been to New Zealand. I'd like to give it a go. And, oh, 15 years later, I'm living in New Zealand and absolutely love it. Haven't turned back. Um, we have a, a workshop there called The Vintage Aviator. We build really accurate reproduction World War I airplanes. Um, we work from original drawings, and we have a CAA Part 148 approval, which means we're no different than Cessna Piper, Beechcraft, Boeing. We've got a quality management system. We maintain full traceability um, of, of all parts and materials, and we work pretty much strictly from original drawings or reverse engineer original parts. It's, it's truly amazing the, the, the stuff that our guys are capable of. And that's an interesting facet for our listeners that you virtually build aircraft from scratch off uh, replicas, off uh, old aircraft. Can you uh, run down what the process is to, sure. to uh, build an aircraft from scratch uh, as a replica? Yeah, no problem. What, what we typically do is we spend about a year doing research. And what we do in that period is collect any original drawings, photographs if we can, any information that'll help us build the airplane and uh, accurately portray a particular airplane. So we're always interested in uh, the color schemes, the history, things like that. If drawings aren't available, there's another avenue that we can take and that's reverse engineering original parts. So we can go to museums, share information with museums and potentially reverse engineer something that exists. Um, once we've spent all that time uh, researching the, the project, we like to build sort of three or four of each type. It gives us that economy of scale. It allows us to add to our collection and also provide us some trading material so that we can trade with other collectors or museums and increase our collection. So we usually uh, build, let's say, three airplanes. Once we've done the research and we have a drawing package, we start doing some CAD work using uh, computers. We come up with water cutting templates and things like that to allow the manufacture of these parts. And then once we start the build process, um, it usually takes us a year to build the first one, and we like to say six months for everyone after that. So, you know, from go to woe, it's sort of a two-year project for the first airplane, and then every airplane we had about six months after that. It's fair to say that's uh, somewhat of an impressive uh, turnover time from start to finish. We uh, have about 52 guys working in our workshop. Um, they're the most fantastic team I've ever worked with. They're, they're so skilled. I mean, the guys in New Zealand are, are fabulous. I mean, you, we have welders that are really good woodworkers. You have woodworkers that can do metal work. They're really multi-talented, which makes what we do possible. And uh, you've brought a very beautiful, very pristine, and just very historic collection of aircraft here. Are you able to run down uh, sure. of the aircraft that you brought all the way from uh, New Zealand? Yeah, yeah, we, we brought 10 airplanes over. It was a monumental task to disassemble 10 airplanes, pack them into six shipping containers and get them here, um, erect them, test fly them, and have them ready for the show. So we brought a bunch of Allied airplanes. We have this fabulous RE-8 here. We've got a DH-5. Uh, De Havilland DH-5 or Airco DH-5. We've got uh, a Sopwith Camel. 
We've got a Newport 11. We've got a Royal Aircraft Factory SE5. Um, so, you know, for the Allied airplanes, every one of those has some significance with the Australians. So the RE-8s are operated by First Squadron in Palestine. Um, Australians operated these with great success. The RE-8 wasn't very well liked with the British. Had a lot of accidents, uh, sort of stall spin accidents, because the gunner sits behind the pilot. There's a center of gravity issue if you're not aware of it. And uh, the Australians had great success with the RE-8. In fact, they liked the airplane. Um, so we've got one of those here. We'd love to see it stay in the country. I'm hoping somebody will take a liking to it. Maybe we could work out a trade or a sale. That would be awesome. Um, the SC-5 was also operated by a number of Australian squadrons. So, with the, so was the Southwest Camel. To, to great success, the Southwest Camel was used by Australians. Um, if you noticed on the side of the DH-5, uh, it's, got, it's a gift airplane. So it was funded by, I think, the Women's Auxiliary in, in, in Australia. And, and that would have been groups here in the homeland that raised money to actually purchase an airplane for the war effort. And it's written right on the side of the airplane. Um, and there's a number of other connections with some of the airplanes we bought. And we did bring, of course, some German airplanes to uh, mix it up with in dogfights, basically for the Allied airplanes to shoot at. And we're standing in front of this RE-8 at the moment, and it is beautiful looking. Uh, it's got a very significant history to Australia, if I recall. It was one of the aircraft that, aircraft types that formed Qantas. Um, what other significant uh, historical well, factors? The, the RE-8 here is significant because in Canberra there's an original Albatross, one of two, an Albatross T5A, one of two that exist in the world. And that Albatross in Canberra was shot down by an RE-8. The airplane I think you're thinking about um, that was significantly tied to Qantas was the F-2B. The, the, the Bristol was used to map out some routes that Qantas flew, the long-reach flights, and they also converted Bristols and turned them into what was called a tourer. And uh, you've brought quite a few aircraft over here from New Zealand. It's fair to say it's a long distance to fly them over. Yeah. You had to pack them up and send them over. Sure. We um, disassembled them all. I mean, the wings come off so we can ship them. They go into a shipping container, but there's an awful lot of rigging. I mean, if you look at this RE-8 here, it's uh, a very large upper wing, wire braced with lots of flying wires, wooden struts. Um, you know, we have to be very careful because they're all typically a, a wooden structure underneath with fabric covering. They're quite fragile. Um, a lot of reassembly, you know, the propeller has to come off, the wings come off, the tail comes off. Some of the airplanes are too tall as they are, so we've even had to take the wheels off. Um, monumental task for our guys. Um, we brought a team over to get here about a week early and start putting them together. But this RE-8, I mean, it's spectacular. We've built every single bit of this airplane. We make the fuel tanks, we make the instruments, we make even the, the tires. The propeller is made by us, and even that, that big V12, 140-horse air-cooled RAF-4A engine is built in our workshop. All the casting, all the machining, all that stuff is done by the Vintage Aviator in Wellington, New Zealand. One week, one week to assemble an aircraft. Yeah, that takes, we've got a lot of, like I said, a lot of skilled guys. Um, they're, they're really used to uh, building up our airplanes. They're experienced with our types. Um, we bring some special tools to help us get the rigging just right. We're very careful in the way we disassemble everything, label everything, 
Um, so we, we try to spend a minimum amount of time putting them back together, but still it's a serious amount of man, manpower required. We were fortunate to have some volunteers from the Point Cook Museum help us. They were great guys. Um, I think they were thrilled to be part of it, and we were certainly thrilled to have them on board helping us. And if you can hear some uh, artillery in the background, it's the uh, Geelong uh, Wall Recreation Group. We're under attack. We're going to have to launch the RE8 again. It's got, it's got bombs underneath it there. I'll happily give you a hand yeah, if you yeah. like. Very good. You can be our gunner. Oh, excellent, excellent. I've always wanted to do that. Um, you've displayed these aircraft for um, the past few days here at Avalon. What's involved in the display? Well, we the, the, the initial display, we, we have two displays for uh, the two different time slots that we fly. One just showcases uh, formation of the German fighters and the various types. We've got a rotary engine Fokker D8 with an engine that we build at TVAL. We have a couple of Fokker triplanes, one from Tavis, the Australian uh, vintage group. We have our own Fokker triplane, uh, of which we have seven back in New Zealand. Um, we've got a Fokker D7, the only airplane named in the armistice specifically, and in um, a Feltz. So those airplanes represent the German uh, contingent that we brought over. And then we fly a, an allied formation to represent the types that the Australians flew. So those are just sort of parade flights where we fly different formations. And uh, when we get into the real dogfighting, we try to showcase what the airplanes were used for. So we have the Bristol and the RE-8 doing some ground patrolling reconnaissance work. And they're flanked by a couple of fighters, uh, a DH-5 and an SE-5 for protection and then they're attacked by the German airplanes. The dogfight ensues, and uh, we split off into our, our safe areas so we can maintain separation throughout the display. We've got a very big display line here, so it's a fantastic opportunity to see a lot happening at once. No matter what end of the field you're on, there's a good view of something happening right in front of you. Um, our airplanes are quite unique. I mean, we operate our entire show within the, the, the grounds of the airfield, so to speak, whereas you know, some of the high, fast-performing jets uh, have to extend well beyond the air, airfield boundaries. We're right in front of the crowd just about all the time. Yesterday we spoke to uh, Mr. Andrew Carter from the Australian Vintage Aviation Society. I mean, it's fair to say uh, your organisation has inspired his. Uh, what, what's the nature of the relationship between uh, the two trans-Tasman organisations? Oh, well, we, we love to see these World War I airplanes promoted and flown. Uh, right now it's the centennial of the Great War, so 100-year anniversary of World War I. Uh, we're happy to help them out, um, give them advice. We just want to see these World War I airplanes operated safely. Um, we're happy to help anybody out that's working on them. There's a couple of really significant projects here in, in Australia being undertaken. Nick Caldwell has a stop with Snipe. We went to visit that uh, the other day at Tyab. Um, Chris Shepard is building an Albatross D5A. These guys have a D8 under construction here that they're ready to test fly pretty soon. The Eindecker, another beautiful German airplane. and. Um, and the Fokker triplane that they're flying. Uh, we've just recently um, worked out a deal so that our Bristol can stay here with the Tavis group, which will be a fantastic uh, opportunity to showcase that in, here in Australia and maybe tour it around to some of the other museums. Um, again, we're just happy to help. It's fantastic to have like-minded individuals communicating. And uh, we mentioned earlier on uh, Peter Jackson, the uh, film director from films such as Lord of the Rings. He's a very big fan of uh, these aircraft. Uh, what's his role with uh, your organization? Um, Sir Peter uh, chairs uh, a trust, the 1914-1918 uh, Aviation Heritage Trust in New Zealand. He's a big proponent of what we do. He's, he's always offering some guidance, uh, suggestions. Uh, fan fantastic uh, person to deal with. He really loves these airplanes. Um, he's, he's taken the Southwith Camel that he bought 
when um, he wanted to do King Kong, uh, and that airplane is now in the trust, as, as well as a number of other airplanes that are operated in New Zealand. The Vintage Aviator looks after them, but we're privileged to have so many nice uh, World War I airplanes in New Zealand, and uh, Sir Peter is certainly responsible for most of that. And for the final question, we're just at the start of 2015, what is your organisation and also Tavis looking at into the future this year and beyond? Well, like I said, um, I'd love to find a way for this uh, RE8 to stay here in, in Australia. Um, there's been some interest in an SE5 that we have, even in Fokker D7. Um, the Vintage Aviator's finally gotten to that point where we have a number of airplanes. We've sort of built up some stock. We have airplanes that we can trade and sell. Um, we'd like to speak to groups in particular so that they can uh, be jointly funded and you know operated by experienced individuals. Some of these airplanes are a little bit tricky to operate, especially the ones with rotary engines, no brakes and a tail skid. Um, but we're happy to, to give advice and, and come over and help people operate them. Um, Tavis is, is growing. They're going to have these two other airplanes flying very soon. So that'll mean they'll have three or four airplanes at their disposal to fly at shows and reenactments. Um, we'd like to see it continue and grow. It's, a, it's an era that's really important to aviation. I mean, the First World War um, defined aerial combat. Uh, again, like any other war, a lot of technology was developed during the First World War. And we're starting to lose that contact with the First World War because so many people that have um, lived in that time period have now passed on. After all, it's 100 years ago, so there's not many survivors. Um, and it's great to see it alive and well here in Australia with the Tavis Group. Have you had much interest with the RE8 in Australia so far? Yeah, look at it. It's beautiful. So many people have come up to us saying we'd love to find a way to keep it here. So we'll see how that goes. There's a few museums talking to us and a couple of other groups and uh, we'd like to work something out. Where do you source your tradesmen in your workshop and also your pilots, your ground crews? It must be quite an undertaking. You must quite get a lot of enthusiasm towards it. That's a, it's a great question. Um, our, our tradesmen, I'm really lucky where, I, where we are in New Zealand, in Wellington. There are a lot of people involved with films there. There's a lot of uh, technology in Wellington. There's a few schools. Um, but we really rely on having people, skilled people come to us that have the right attitude. Um, you know, we're building flying airplanes. People's lives are at stake. We're very um, exacting and precise in what we do. Um, because we're a Part 148 aircraft manufacturer, you know, licensed by CAA, we have an operations manual, we have a manufacturing process manual, an awful lot of paperwork. So we want people that have the right attitude to work for us. And, and I've had the pleasure of working with some of the best guys in the industry and really talented individuals. They're fantastic. When it comes to pilots, we get a lot of people asking us to, to, you know, to come fly with us. Um, we really want people that have a lot of tailwheel experience. Um, some mechanical knowledge because these airplanes require um, a lot of pre-flight maintenance. You know, um, the engines often need rockers lubricated and oil sump strained and um, water pumps greased. So the pilots have to know how to do all that. They're a little bit different, a little bit more cantankerous than some modern airplanes. So we want pilots with the right attitude as well. We try to assign a pilot to an airplane and he looks after it. He makes sure that it's cleaned, wiped down, fueled, oiled. Um, and they really sort of adopt an airplane, and it's a great process for us. Um, the guys do a fantastic job. We've got pilots from basically all walks of life. We've got some airline guys, some military guys, top dressers, general aviation, um, you name it. Fantastic, fantastic. It's been great talking to you. 
thank you very much for your time and we wish you all the best uh, with your oh, endeavours. Thank you. We hope to come back someday soon. And we look forward to it and we'll uh, try and speak to you then. Fantastic. Thanks again. Pleasure. I'm here with Jeff from the Australian Aviation Hall of Fame. Jeff, thanks for giving me some of your time. Oh, it's our pleasure. Tell us about the Hall of Fame. Well, the Hall of Fame was uh, set up a few years ago. Uh, we've been now on had three annual inductions. Uh, it was set up by the Australian aviation industry. Uh, members of the industry recognised that uh, the contributions of a lot of our aviation pioneers were not recognised properly, and it was decided that a Hall of Fame was the right thing to do. Uh, Paul Tyrrell from the Regional Aviation Association was the the instigator of it and uh, now we have a, a, a board of senior uh, aviation uh, industry people who run the Aviation Hall of Fame and uh, we're looking for a bright future. Well we always talk about the future of aviation and I think here at Avalon it's you know a lot is made of what's happening in the future but it's such a rich history here in Australia too isn't it? It's an incredible heritage Australia uh, in, in aviation terms, civil aviation terms in particular. Uh, there are many, many uh, pioneers who were Australian who led the way for the world in developing uh, aviation services. And again, it's one of the aims of the Hall of Fame to not only recognise that, but to provide information so that we can ins particularly inspire young people uh, to see what the industry has done and to get them involved in it for the future. It's all about showing young people, in particular, I think, that um, you know, if you have a dream and you have the will to do it, even though times perhaps are a little bit different now, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's the attitude that's still the same. Absolutely, and uh, again, uh, it's, it's really uh, showing what can be done and, and inspiring people that, that will make the difference with it all. So tell us about some of the more uh, famous and perhaps some of the maybe not so well-known uh, inductees that you've got. Well, so far we've inducted 21 people and three organisations into the Hall of Fame. Uh, the inaugural uh, induction was held in 2011 and Lawrence Hargrave was the first inductee and Lawrence Hargrave is considered to be effectively the father of flight because his work uh, developing box kites uh, and the actual uh, design of the wing uh, for an aircraft was instrumental uh, later on in, de in effectively determining flight. But we've got many very well-known uh, aviators in the Hall of Fame so far, such as Sir Charles Kingsford-Smith, uh, Bert Hinkler, uh, Harry Hawker and others. But uh, we also have some that are not so well-known either. And they include uh, Laura's Bonnie. Now, Laura's Bonnie was actually a South African lady who emigrated to Australia when she was about 12 but uh, with a family, but she was the first woman to fly uh, an aircraft between Australia and, and England uh, in the early 1930s, and then subsequently flew an aircraft uh, from Australia to Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, obviously not directly across the water, no, no. <coughs> but uh, around, you know, obviously through uh, uh, Asia and across India and then uh, from the, the Middle East down to the, to the bottom of South Africa. And uh, she's a lady that really received no major recognition at all until uh, her induction into the Hall of Fame. 
We get out and do a lot of uh, community engagement to raise the awareness not only of what uh, you're doing there at the uh, the Hall of Fame, but obviously about the history of some of these famous people. Look, it, it's it's fairly hard for us to do a lot of that, but obviously our presence here at the uh, International Air Show is, is one way of doing that. Uh, the Hall of Fame is set up on a website, which is www.aahof.com.au, and we're trying to, to use that as the means to to uh, generate interest in it and, and promote its uh, its activity. But our main uh, purpose at this stage of the game is to induct people, uh, to do the annual uh, induction dinner, which we hold in Wagga Wagga in New South Wales each year. And it's, it's continuing to receive more and more um, aviation industry support and uh, sponsors such as uh, Jeppesen, uh, which even though it's an American Boeing company, uh, was the first major sponsor that the Hall of Fame received. Uh, Shell Aviation, General Electric uh, and a number of other sponsors in the industry have supported it really well. And do you have much interaction with Defence? There's obviously some uh, pretty famous uh, you know, aviators from that sector. It, it is. Uh, there is a, a, a connection there. And last year we inducted uh, into the Hall of Fame through what we call the Southern Cross Award, uh, the Australian Air Force Cadets. Uh, many, many uh, people in civil aviation started their aviation career in the, in the Air Force Cadets. It's interesting, a lot of so many people we've interviewed over the years on this show and uh, that's quite a common theme actually, they started in the cadets and yes. senior airline pilots or yep. senior military pilots. Oh, absolutely and that was the reason that uh, uh, they were inducted last year. Uh, this is more about civil aviation because in reality the Air Force and the military have their own recognition arrangements but uh, the, the real issue was that there are great people involved in civil aviation in Australia that hadn't been recognised properly. Uh, and this is to put that recognition really in one place. Now, you've been here in Hall 1 uh, all week, and it's obviously quite busy here today on the public days. Have you, you know, had a lot of interest, a lot of passing traffic this week? Yeah, indeed, a lot of interest. Uh, it's, quite, uh, it's quite interesting. People come up and tell us stories about people that they've known that have, that have made great contributions to... Uh, civil aviation and, and our response to that is well look that's really great but they need to be recognised so you know nominate them go onto our website website and nominate them for for inclusion for induction and uh, uh, inductions close on the 31st of March each year but they remain active for, for five years so there's plenty of scope. Okay and once again if people uh, are interested in having a look at that process they can obviously go to your website and find out all about it there. Yes that's that's correct and also read the stories and look at the, the videos associated with each of the inductees because they're absolutely great stories there. Jeff whereabouts is the museum located? Well it's it's on the website at the moment uh, we don't have bricks and mortar but our uh, we're actually uh, set up in Wagga Wagga in New South Wales and the aim down the track is to uh, erect a bricks and mortar exhibition uh, recognising each of the inductors. Well Jeff, it's a wonderful thing you're doing I think and I uh, wish you every success with it and thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, it's been my pleasure, thanks very much. Welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. 
Well, good afternoon. Nice to speak to you. Yeah. Cool. Now, mate, you're uh, once again in the uh, Fly Your Ideas program from uh, from Airbus. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about RMIT's involvement? I've, um, I've just heard that last last session in 2013 was your first attempt. 2013 was our first attempt and we did very well. Um, we came runners-up in the competition uh, with an idea of using a new fuel and aircraft uh, that would make aircraft more sustainable in the future and permit growth and make the industry cleaner. So we're proud of that. This year we've got five new uh, entries, five new concepts, all exciting ideas. We have no idea which is the best, um, but they're innovative and the students are putting a lot of work into them. Um, it's a great education experience for students. And it's great that it's um, with Airbus. It adds, a, you know, it adds that competitive uh, flavour to everything. And it makes it real. We're the only Australian representatives left in, so wow. uh, we're representing Australia now. <laughs> well, because yeah, uh, 2013, how many teams did you have? It was just the one team, or were there a couple that made it, and then only the one made it through We got the through to the last five, um, and there were other, other universities in Australia got through to the last hundred, but we were the only ones to get through to the last five, and as I said, we became runners-up. This year, we've got five teams in the final 100. Okay. And they're all from Australia, as I said, and uh, we have no idea which is the, which team will win. So it's quite exciting, yeah. Yeah, very, very exciting. So, uh, what kind of uh, areas are, you, are the teams presenting of the, the five? Well, a range of ideas. Um, some of them are inspired by nature or by inspired ideas. Uh, some are uh, ideas the students have had. Some that they had with the staff. But they're all effectively aim to improve the sustainability and improve the growth uh, of air transport in a sustainable manner. Now this is with the uh, just a general engineering group or within RMIT? Or? All the projects uh, are actually within the School of Aerospace, Mechanical and uh, Manufacturing Engineering at RMIT. How long has that school been around? We have actually one student though from Swinburne who's okay. joined working with us in one of our teams. Oh, cool, yeah. oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And how long has the uh, RMIT Aerospace Group been, been in, in, in operation? Oh, the, the school's been around for several decades. But, uh, as I said, we only entered the competition uh, two years. But just yeah. correct what you said earlier, we also have in these, these groups collaboration with international universities. So we've got students from Europe and China also involved in this project. So. And so everyone's yeah. like first or second year? No, we've got this year a, a different, a, a different uh, mix of students. We've actually got PhD students working with undergraduates because Airbus wanted to up the game yep. and uh, they specifically encouraged that in the competition. And we've got, some, we've got one team, uh, almost all PhD students, and they're, and they're motivated to, to do that as well. So that's great. So are they doing like a combined uh, study and, and results? Well, they'll be, they'll be doing their individual PhDs in very, very specific areas. This is separate. It's like competition. It actually is quite inspiring to them to, to work on something that could potentially be commercially used. And the idea eventually is if it, with one of these ideas the students come up with actually will be introduced on Airbus aircraft. That yeah. could happen. Yeah. It's yep. early days yet, but I think I think it's, uh, it could happen. I think okay. the competition grows and it is growing. Yep. It has every chance of achieving that. And a, bit, a little bit about yourself. What's your background in uh, aerospace? Oh, uh, my, my background is far too old now. I go back... Uh, I watched the, the uh, 1969 moon landing, so <laughs> I'm an Apollo era man. Yep. So I, I was uh, uh, an engineer, basically in industry, but also an academic at Cambridge University and uh, elsewhere. Okay. So I've been in, uh, in Australia for three years, and I, I love it. It's great. <laughs> great. <laughs> well said. So David and Shalandra, uh, 
have a chat to us about what your team is putting into the Fly Your Ideas this year. Okay, well, we've got some new technology. It's bio-inspired, and it's uh, optimized to deal with the current challenges that the industry is facing, and we think it's particularly relevant to Airbus. Okay. Are you allowed to tell us a little more about just how the bio-inspiration, what it's led to? We're certainly restricted into how much information we can divulge, but... Because uh, it is a competition after all, and we want to keep our competitive edge as we go along. Um, but it's, a, it's an idea that we hope uh, can be implemented very soon into an aircraft. It's incorporating many upcoming technologies uh, that are lightweight and are sustainable. Um, so that's the angle we're going for. Well, we'll give you a little clue. The team name is Ivy. Uh, yes. So there's that, something. Okay. So, yeah, you should probably be able to piece something together. So it's very bio-inspired. Our team's team, Ivy. And, yeah, we're going, uh, we're going for the win here. Yeah, that's good. We that's are. Good to hear. We really are. This is your, and, and are you, what year are you through your studies at the moment? So we're both double degree students in our fifth year of our course. So we're doing business and aerospace engineering. Hardcore. Yes. Very hardcore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I suppose I could tell you also that it's a, it's a structural component that we're working on that's designed to be both stronger and lighter. Yep. Excellent, which is uh, just what the aircraft need, and especially Airbus, uh, they're always pushing that angle. Definitely, definitely. Especially at this time in the industry. Okay, yeah. well, all the best, guys. Good luck. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Okay, going to introduce Luke and Thang, uh, working on a different project. Um, I know you can't tell us all the details. We've just been advised that, which means the Brazilians aren't going to pay me anything for getting them any information. <laughs> no. This year. no. Where's, it, where's it all at? Uh, what's, what's your team doing? Okay, so uh, I'll start. Um, our team is trying to target the most overlooked um, demographic and that is the zero to two age with um, say from three to say 103 um, their their safety and their comfort is really well designed you know it's really well documented how you meant to um, escape during an accident or when you put an oxygen mask onto a child or a parent but on any safety video do you see one for a baby no you don't know what to do with a baby during an emergency. So we're really trying to modulize the whole process and actually make it um, easy for parents to do and also making sure that the, our priority is infant comfort. Yeah, because I know that's a, you, you get the situation of people nursing infants on their lap or having the double belts yeah. and things like that or the bassinets. I, I know when I traveled with, when my son was very young, uh, this, a while back we used the, uh, the bassinet in the front. We were lucky to get one of those. Uh, there's been a lot of studies, like in the past they used to say hold on to your child yeah. in the crash, but how can you do that? It's, it's, so is it, is it that kind of thing or the whole picture of infant it, safety? It's, it's a whole picture, so it's basically from when you check in to once you get off the planes and then emergencies as well. So we're trying to think of every possible thing that we could put in, whether if it's a simple vibrator just to hum the baby along, just to keep it uh, comfortable or something as a life inbuilt life vest or maybe even other life support um, mechanisms in it as well. How do you fit into the project? So at the moment, I've been um, doing a lot of conceptual sketching. Um, I've been onto the, the, the sort of the marketing and flyer side of the project, um, helping Tang uh, and the rest of the team realize the idea, um, visualize it. As yeah, um, we've been looking at a lot of the ergonomics and the uh, sort of the the way that people interact with our new bassinet design, um, making it user friendly. Uh, easy to maintain and that, that along those sort of lines, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Introduce uh, Justin. Justin's another. His pro his team's called Aero Weave. Uh, do you want to say 
So our team is focusing on um, reducing MRO costs in the airline industry. So it's a, a new, uh, highly fracture resistant, tough material that incorporates 3D weaving. And it's also a self-sensing material that um, works in similar ways to the human sensory system to tell you where damage is occurring in the aircraft and also our self-healing technologies to repair that damage. Yeah. And that will ideally reduce um, weight in the aircraft, which will reduce fuel burn and then lead on to Maintenance, yeah. Cost. Maintenance cost, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And where are you at in your uh, studies? Uh, are you uh, undergraduate, postgrad? Uh, starting PhD. Yeah. Yeah, the hard bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck, mate. Yeah. All the best. Thank, Thank you. you. And our fifth team member, Lewin. Hi. Uh, good, good thanks. Hi. Representing the fifth team, rather. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's your team doing? Um, our team is basically promoting a design which featuring enhanced traceability towards the aircraft apart from radar and ACAS, all those stuff in aircraft. So we'll, uh, effectiveness and uh, liability will be our main goal. So our technology will be focused on that two parts. What was your inspiration for coming up with the, the, what your project's doing? It would be actually two accidents from recently, so with two crashing aircraft, actually give me a feeling that there would be, yeah, there would be great in, urgent improvement towards the radar and all those tracking facilities. We'll focus on information, improving information yeah. flow yeah, rather exactly. than safety. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's sort of You've got quite a range of where everyone's coming from on right. this. It's not all the same kind of area. This is fantastic stuff. Yeah, yeah cool. it is. That's great. Well done. Thanks. Okay, so Isabel. Isabel Foret, welcome from Airbus. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. And uh, can you please tell us a little bit about uh, where your position is in Airbus and how you fit in with the Make It Fly program? Well, the Fly UID program, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, program. I mean, being an engineer by, by training, I really like and support this, uh, this program because I really believe this is the, the future of aviation. You know, you need, you need people who uh, come with bright ideas, think, thinking out of the box. And, uh, and even if you're an engineer, you know, my, my case, I'm now head of sales. So I think, you know, it's, uh, studying engineering is a fantastic, uh, as you say, reservoir for future talent you know, in, in all disciplines in, uh, in aviation. Now, uh, this is, you've been running this program every two years for a number of years. Uh, have, how have the results gone from the early, early uh, competitions, the winners? How, how have their, uh, their products gone? How, how, have any of them made it to market now in Airbus? Are they I think it's, I mean, it's, this program is going from strength to strength. It's something that we started uh, some four, I think it's the fourth edition. And, uh, you know, it started from, you know, ideas of engineers, of Charles, and, and supported. And it's been going from growth to growth. And I'm actually very pleased this year that we have some, uh, some people from MRI, MRI. RMIT, sorry, that's my that's French. Okay. <laughs> because I remember I was I was in Melbourne a couple of years ago, and uh, and I said, oh guys, you know, why are you not supporting? Why are you not sending team there? And it was not very well known in this part of the world. And now, you know, it's it's fantastic to have six team. 
and um, you know at the end of the day whether the the idea comes to um, uh, commercialization or industrialization I mean obviously it's important but what's important it's to have people you know enthusiastic about an idea project thinking of the box and uh, at the end of the day there will always be something left yeah and it's, it's just you're stim- helping to stimulate the uh, production of new ideas which is a fantastic thing and exactly yeah. and and to give people you know equal opportunity um, and and give the opportunity to you know to stu- to students to who will not necessarily think about it because they think that you know to do that you you need to embark in a research program or whatever but here you just you're in engineering school and um, you just well I've got an idea and just had a couple of discussions with some of them and you know it's um, challenging and uh, and and say well did you think about that oh yeah it's just uh, it's you know it's 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 growing concept I, I think it's I think it's great it's really great to have all these students around you know various um, nationality discipline but only um, uh, you know they only dri- they driven by the passion of, of, of flying and, and, and aircraft so it's I think it's great it's fantastic and uh, thanks to Airbus for, uh, for putting this on but yeah thank you very much and uh, we're looking forward to seeing how the teams go getting down to the final five and yeah me too and I hope that they're, they're going to win <laughs> yeah, they did pretty well last time yeah so yeah exactly so close yeah so go Australia <laughs> all right thank you Mike Borsa, welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, it's, uh, it's a, really is a pleasure to be back here in Australia. Yeah, you're looking a little more refreshed than last time we caught up. Yeah, I think last time, uh, last time I just spent something like uh, three weeks on board an aeroplane. <laughs> um, and uh, no, I've uh, this time around, it's a, I've come down, you know, and had a proper night's sleep in a, in a proper <laughs> hotel. So excellent, excellent. And uh, so last time we caught up it was when the A350 first came through Sydney, and then again in Perth. Now, uh, at that point, it was the route proving and uh, demonstrating that it could be used commercially and so on. Yep. Uh, clearly, it's gone into production and operation in service with uh, Qatar. Yes. Uh, so, how's it been since uh, last year when you came through? There's a lot of lot of milestones. There's there's been some some major major milestones. It's been an extremely busy year. We've uh, we've but we've achieved so much. The first, of course, the first noticeable uh, milestone is the certification of the aircraft, uh, which took place on the 30th of September. Uh, by EASA a little later with the FAA on the 20th of November but you know that's uh, that's because we're I suppose that's because we're European but uh, um, but on the on the other hand no it's been fantastic and the, the good thing is that we we, uh, we delivered on our promises which were to deliver uh, to, to certify the aircraft by the end of the third quarter 2014 and to deliver the first aircraft before the end of the year which we also successfully achieved with the Qatar Airways on the 22nd of December. And that was a little later than planned. Uh, what I was hearing was that um, a, part, a factor in that was them wanting it just right with the interior decor and layout. Is that? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, you know Qatar uh, Qatar Airways are a very demanding uh, customer. They are they are after all a uh, world sort of five star airline, yeah. um, and uh, and they have every right to be uh, demanding. And of course, we as a 
manufacturer want to make sure that the aircraft is also just just right when we when we deliver it. Uh, but I'd just like to actually quote uh, uh, Akbar Al-Bakr uh, on that. Uh, he will actually tell you that we delivered the aircraft early, not late, because uh, the promise that we'd made to him was to deliver it by the end of the year, and the uh, 22nd of December is one week early. So there you go. And as, as you said during the presentation, if you can if you can get Qatar happy up front, then you know you got it right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for us, uh, you know, having having Qatar as the, as the launch customer, um, obviously creates a challenge uh, but if, if, if we can do that and we can deliver on time then it puts us in very good posture for, for uh, delivering the other aircraft to all our other customers or our other 39 customers that we have. <laughs> that's the one yeah uh, you're quite uh, busy uh, yeah. you've got a good order book three years backlog already uh, at least yeah we've got 780 aeroplanes now on order from uh, from 40 customers around the world yep. uh, so for us it's very very pleasing there's something of a, of a record uh, at least for, for Airbus in terms of wide body aircraft uh, having that many uh, orders in such a a short period of time. Remember, we only launched the uh, the program in December 2006. Um, so, yeah, a major achievement, I think. So the rest of this year is uh, ramping up the production line, as you're saying. So. Yeah, I mean, we've we've uh, we've actually moved on from uh, from the, the the prototyping and and having the the, the the test flight test aircraft, and we're now you know very much into the uh, industrialization of the A350. Uh, really uh, heavily focused on on manufacturing. Um, and ramping up the, the production. I think we're building the first parts for aircraft number 35. Um, so, of course, what we can see, uh, what is very visible, is the final assembly line in Toulouse, because uh, that's where all the parts actually come together at the end. Uh, but in our plants around the world, as I say, we're building, already building parts for aircraft number 35. Yep, and uh, well underway with starting production of uh, the first uh, 1000 series as well. Yes, we started with the first 1000, actually started, uh, which will be a prototype. Yet again, well, that, that takes us back to, uh, to more flight test aircraft. We'll actually have a, a fleet of three uh, flight test aircraft for the uh, Dash 1000. Uh, and we started the, we did the first metal cut and the uh, first carbon fiber layup on the 25th of June uh, of 2014. Uh, Rolls-Royce are uh, heavily involved with the engine. They've got the first uh, 97,000 pounds of thrust engine up and running during the Farber Air Show. And uh, they're, they're conducting, obviously, all the, uh, all the testing and, uh, and development work that needs to be done on that. Later on uh, this year, we'll be flying uh, that engine on the A380 flying test bed just like we did for the engine for the for the Dash 900 um, and uh, and there we are and then we got entry into service in, in 2017 for the Dash 1000 so we got a lot of work ahead of us no rest for Mike uh, absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> okay mate well all the best for the years ahead and congratulations thank on you very much point. thanks for coming on thanks. the show again thank you very much Grant cheers mate David Valupile from Airbus Corporate Jets welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under thank you Last time we caught up with you, we were sitting on board the ACJ319 at, here at Avalon two years ago. Um, a lot's happened since then. Yes, indeed. One of the things that we've just started offering to customers around the world is what we call the ACJ330 Summit. This combines the popular and efficient A330 airframe with a cost-effective cabin. Now, a customer that wants a wide body as a corporate jet is typically looking to carry more people. So your delegation might be not just prime minister plus government advisors, might, but might also include industrialists, heads of companies, might also include media, support staff, and so on. And the wide body will also give you non-stop to the world range. So what we've done is we've taken the ACJ 
or rather the A330 airliner platform, which is the world's most delivered wide body. We, we launched the A330 and A340 as a joint program, sharing the same basic airframe. And together, those two aircraft, we've now delivered more than 1,500 of them. And that's more than any other wide body in the world. The aircraft itself, it's, it's very popular. It's flying with about 160 plus air, um, customers and operators. And we're making them at a rate of about 10 aircraft a month. So more than 100 aircraft a year. And because over time, we've continued to improve the A330, We've increased the maximum takeoff weight of the aircraft from 212 tons in the beginning to more than 242 tons today. And that gives the aircraft a lot more range than it had in the beginning. So what we can offer today as a, a corporate jet is an aircraft that will fly pretty much non-stop to the world with the larger delegations that a government or indeed a private customer might want to, to carry. And the cost-effective cabin that we're talking about combines a mix of airline-style seating, so economy class, business class, with a VIP section in the aircraft. And, and that works because typically with this kind of aircraft, you want to carry more people, but not all of them are VIPs. So what we can offer as a new-build aircraft with good availability is a rear part of the aircraft, which is airline-style seating for guests, industrialists, media, support staff, and so on and a front part of the aircraft, which is VIP. And we can install, as we do on the airline side, the airline-style seating element on the assembly line, and then we would just send the aircraft to an approved cabin outfitter to do the VIP section at the front. And all that together results in a very cost-effective way to carry more people non-stop to the world. Are you offering the uh, NEO option on the summit? The NEO is something that on the airline side is in flight testing right now and we'll start to deliver those aircraft later this year. On the corporate jet side, it's a, a little bit further into the future, but it is something that we are actively working on. The NEO is tremendously interesting. NEO, of course, stands for New Engine Option. And that's tremendously interesting for an airline because that new engine and the sharklets, those things sticking up at the tip of the wings, give a 15% improvement in fuel burn per passenger initially, and that will increase to around 20% as time goes on. So that's a huge, huge benefit for an airline. It's something an airline cannot ignore. On the corporate jet side, it's the kind of thing that will bring an improvement in mission capability, the, the ability to link two cities that you might not otherwise have been able to do before. But it's more of a, a range thing than an economic thing. And the corporate jet customer is typically interested in what they can get today, mm. this year and next year. And uh, it's kind of like you and I, we, we want it and we want it now. <laughs> so their horizon for buying aircraft doesn't extend a long way into the future. So the NEO is something we're actively working on, but it'll be a bit further down the road. So the uh, 330 as a corporate jet is pretty fantastic. Now, when last we spoke, the, the corporate jet range did include a, an A380 conceptually. I believe there has been a uh, corporate jet version of the A380. Uh, has that actually gone through? There was, I believe it was a head of state in, in the Middle East area was interested we, in that. We did sell an ACJ 380, uh, a green aircraft, uh, to a Middle East customer some years ago. 
In the meantime, it was transferred to another customer, but the aircraft was never delivered. It was never outfitted with a cabin, and uh, and today that aircraft is no longer in our order book. But the A380 does remain the world's largest aircraft, Mm -hmm. so it's kind of the ultimate corporate jet because with 551 square meters of space, you really have the, the room to take uh, a mansion into the sky or an office block into the sky. Yeah. So that, that's still uh, something that could be done, but it's, it's further down the road. Okay, because uh, I'd recently heard that um, they'd, they'd sent one through, but yeah, it's a shame it didn't, didn't wind up finalizing. So that would have been amazing to see. The, the A380, of course, is uh, something that we have created to respond to the airline market because the number of people flying doubles every 15 years. So, so that's the challenge for, for Sydney Airport, Melbourne Airport, other airports around Australia, around the world. How can an airline, how can an airport, how can air traffic control, how can the infrastructure deal with twice as many people flying? And, and the answer is that you have to move to long, uh, to, to larger aircraft in uh, the longer term. Yeah. And, and what the A380 does is offer the world the ability to carry more people more efficiently and more comfortably, by the way. Yes. I personally haven't had a chance to fly on one yet, but uh, my co-host has, and he, he really enjoyed it. Uh, and I know a number of folks have flown on the Emirates experience and loved it, and Singapore, as well as Qantas. So, uh, yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly an, an incredible aircraft to be on. It, it absolutely is. It's stunningly quiet. And, and one of the things that we have done throughout our history at Airbus is to give the passenger more. We, we don't just build the world's most economically efficient aircraft, but we've also gone out of our way to give the passengers a more comfortable seat. What happens, of course, is that the airline on which you are flying decides the space between your seat and the one in front of you, mm-hmm. but we as the manufacturer decide the diameter of the fuselage, and hence we can directly influence the width of your seat. So when you fly in an Airbus aircraft, other things being equal, you are going to get a wider seat than if you fly on brand B. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Mike was saying something similar to that yesterday. He said, a wide body aircraft for for wide body passengers like us, we need a a wide seat. (laughs) Well, it's not just a a question of comfort, of course, because over time, we as the the human race have got bigger Mm -hmm. and broader. With, with good health, good food, good, uh, good, living. Uh, good living, we, we, we become taller and, and, and wider, and Airbus aircraft can handle that. Despite the airline's best efforts, you're still making sure we've got some comfort. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's especially important on, yes. a, on a longer flight. Very. And, and those wider fuselages are something that we can capitalize on in our corporate jet family, because we take the world's most modern aircraft family, Airbus airliners, and then we turn them into corporate jets. And what customers for corporate jets are typically looking to do is to take their lifestyle into the sky. If they're a corporate customer and they want to use the time productively for work, then we provide a better working environment. But equally, if it's a private customer that wants to take something like their luxury villa or home into the sky, we can do that too. Uh, and traveling in an Airbus corporate jet is a much more social 
and enjoyable experience than flying in traditional business jets because when you fly in a traditional business jet you tend to take your seat and you don't move out of your seat until you get to your destination simply because it's hard it's awkward to get up and move around but in an Airbus corporate jet because we have the widest and the tallest cabin of any business jet you can easily get up and walk around and you can socialize with different groups of people throughout the cabin and we noticed that when we were on board the uh, ACJ319 last, last time at Avalon. It was uh, very spacious and very well laid out. How are you finding, um, on, the, on the smaller side, on the, on the uh, 320 series, how are you finding in terms of the ACJs? Is it mostly the 319 or are the 320s and 21s of interest to people? It's across the board. We have uh, a complete family of aircraft. We can offer corporate jet versions of all of the modern Airbus aircraft family. So we have sales, uh, the majority of them are indeed ACJ319s. That's an aircraft which would typically seat about 125 passengers with an airline. But as a corporate jet, typically would seat around 19 passengers, although we can do more than that if that's what the customer wants. No, it looked pretty good for, uh, like a, to put it bluntly, a, a well-off person with their, their uh, family and their minders and their uh, support staff and so on would go quite nicely in that kind of 19-seat environment. Uh, our main customers for Airbus corporate jets, we've sold about 170 of them, and they break down roughly one-third, one-third, one-third between companies, between individuals, and between governments. And, uh, for example, here in Australia, Sky Traders, it has two ACJ319s, and, and it does charter flights with those aircraft and one of them is very interesting because it's flying scientists mm -hmm. to and from ice runways in Antarctica. Yep, we've had, had the guys on uh, some years ago, we interviewed one of the pilots of that particular aircraft and their ability to stage all the way from um, Australia to Antarctica and back with reserves, no need to fuel, uh, yeah, that's, that's a, a pretty, pretty good little uh, setup there. Yes, it's a very interesting operation because, the, as you say, uh, you, you need to have the ability to go there and if at the last minute the, the weather turns bad, turn around and come back without landing. And Airbus corporate jets, with their intercontinental range, have the ability to take off from Australia or from New Zealand, fly to the ice runway, land if conditions permit, but if not, turn around and come straight back. Yep. And it's basically a standard... Airbus airliner which is doing that. It's not modified in any particular way so it really demonstrates the tremendous versatility of Airbus aircraft to be able to operate in that rather extreme environment. Anything else you'd like to say about the corporate jet environment with Airbus? Well it's something of course which is uh, a complement to the airline side of our business. The, the main business of Airbus is in delivering airlines to the, the world's airlines. Uh, on the airline side, we've now booked orders since we began for more than 15,000 Airbus aircraft. That's, that's phenomenal. And uh, we have more than 500 customers and operators around the world. And of course, we, we really want to help our customers to get the best out of their Airbus aircraft. So we've built over time what is the most worldwide, most comprehensive support network. That's things such as spare centers around the world, training centers around the world, and teams of specialists on site, typically at airline maintenance bases, to help the customers get what they need.
if they want to upgrade their aircraft, if they need a spare part, if they need something in the way of training. We have a network that can provide for the needs of those 500 customers operators. On the corporate jet side, we, we provide that support to our private jet customers, but in addition, we recognize that private jet customers have special needs because unlike an airline which might be operating 10, 50 or 100 aircraft, which will have a big engineering team, a big maintenance base, a corporate jet customer might just be a handful of people. So they sometimes need a little bit more support in addition to what we provide uh, them and our airline customers. So we set up uh, about a year and a half ago a dedicated hotline for our corporate jet customers. It's a, a single point of contact and the customer can call it up. They're immediately in touch with a specialist who's familiar with the particular needs of corporate jets uh, and, and their operators. Uh, we have dedicated maintenance programs, a, a low utilization maintenance program because typically the corporate jet customer flies a few hundred hours a year less than the few thousand that an airline might fly. So we have maintenance that's adapted to those particular needs. We have customer support directors attributed to each of our corporate jet customers. So, so we do a lot for the particular needs of corporate jet customers as well as, as, as the airlines. Yep. Excellent. It's a great support network and well done for recognizing that yeah, they are, they are a special breed, the folks flying those ones, the corporate jets. They are indeed. Yeah. Uh, of course, the airlines tend to fly fixed routes, mm -hmm. so the pilots know where they're going. But a corporate jet customer could be called to fly anywhere in the world at short notice. So, mm -hmm. so they're much more in demand to go to different places uh, at different times. Well, David, thank you very much for taking the time to come back on the show again. It's been great to catch up with you. And uh, thanks for the update on where everything's at. Thank you. Well, there you go. We started with Gulfstream and we ended with Airbus. But you know, for most of us, the common theme between these corporate jets is that we're all dreaming of getting flights in them, let alone owning one. I mean, it'd be nice, wouldn't it, just to even just get a flight in one, let alone uh, to be able to charter one or own it and uh, use it to fly around the world for your business or pleasure. Meanwhile, as you might imagine, we still have more Avalon 2015 content, and with luck, we'll get it into the feed sooner than the gap between the previous episode and this one, so hopefully it'll be uh, significantly less than a few months. Thanks to everyone for your patience with our delays, and thanks also to those who have been contacting us to check that we're still alive and asking when the next episode would be out. We've not quite pod-faded yet, and there's still a big backlog of content from lots of other events, not just Avalon, that we need to edit and get into the feed. Meanwhile, you can usually hear us each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast, and I'm helping out Dave Homewood with the Wings Over New Zealand live show that comes up monthly on Warbird Radio. I've also recently appeared on Adam Knight's great podcast called Go Flying Australia, as well as turning up as a guest on the Plain Talking UK podcast. We'll have links for all these other shows in the show notes for this episode, and you can find that on www.plainecrazydownunder.com. For now, it's time to do the final edit on this episode and get it published. I'm Grant McCarran, and on behalf of the whole PCDU team, thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to bringing you more content soon. Until then, stay safe, and go get some altitude and whatever form of aviation you can find. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, Alan Van Page, 
and Micah Lee. Full show notes for this and all our episodes are at plaincrazydownunder.com. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, Google+, YouTube and Vimeo. Feedback, suggestions, advertising inquiries. Email them through to contact at plaincrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production.